Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I've never spoken at Tyndale before. I'm a little nervous of you guys, so be kind. Um, I'm going to talk about this question behind me. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? It's actually a quote from a book that I'm about to tell you about in just a moment. A book by Salman Rushdie. How many of you have heard of Salman Rushdie? Good. That's great. That's exciting. Okay. Um, I would like to say as I begin this talk tonight, it's going to be about 40 minutes, and I have 24 slides. And the reason for that is to help those of you who are feeling like, this is long, or it's the evening, or I need my coffee fix, or whatever it is. Just keep watching the slides, and they will help you. And I love making PowerPoint slides because I love putting in pictures. So there's lots of pictures for those of you who like that kind of stuff too. Uh, and we'll see how we go. I'm not actually used to lecturing. I'm more used to doing classes that have lots of feedback. But I can't do that tonight because there's a lot to get through. And you have a class to go to, right? The second half of your class. Is that correct after this? As much time as you want. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they might not agree with you. But anyway, we'll see how we do. Uh, so, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? Narrative in the Christian reader is a topic. I'd like to say, the very first thing I'd like to say about this is that this is a topic which is really about life and death. This is deeply serious stuff about the real world. This is not just academic. And you need to understand that before we start. So don't think what we're talking about this evening is just stuff you do in class. No, it's stuff that happens in the world, out there, and it involves life and death in a very literal sense. And you'll see what I mean by that in a moment. Because I need to start by explaining this title. And the way I'm going to do that is by just telling you a little bit about Salman Rushdie. He's probably best known for the Satanic Verses. Anybody read that novel? Good for you. A couple of you. Um, That's the book for which, in February 1989, he was put under a death warrant, a fatwa, by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who at that point was the political leader of Iran, the religious leader of Iran. That novel was said to be a blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad. And the Islamic faithful were called upon to exterminate its writer and any others who were actively engaged in its promotion. And this is a quote. Anyone who dies in the cause of ridding the world of Rushdie will be a martyr. Unquote. Remember, this is um, 1989, 1999. This is 12 years before 9-11 we're talking about. So, however strongly we might feel about blasphemy or even about the inadvisability of scandalizing the religious beliefs of other people, it isn't the Christian way to murder the writer, except perhaps in reviews. But in Rushdie's case, in the first four years of this fatwa, so from 1989 to 1993, the Japanese translator of the book was murdered. Its Italian translator and Norwegian publisher were both nearly killed. The Norwegian publisher only just about survived with his life. An assassin accidentally blew himself up in a hotel in England with a bomb that was intended for Rushdie. 56 people were killed and a further 160 wounded in riots and associated troubles sparked by this book in India, in Pakistan, and in Turkey. Not necessarily that the people involved had read the book, you understand but they'd heard that it was blasphemous against Muhammad. The fatwa was apparently negotiated to an end by the British government in 1998, so nine years later. 
But in February of 2006, so not very long ago, a government-run foundation in Iran declared that, after all, the fatwa will be in effect forever. So, essentially, Rushdie will never be free of Islamic extremism, and his life will always, at some level, be on the line. If you're interested in reading more about that, I've just today, in fact, finished the book called Joseph Anton, which is his biography, autobiography, of those years that he spent under the fatwa. It's a huge book, 635 pages. So I'd recommend you don't read it until the end of the semester, but you could do it when you're on one of those very boring summer jobs where all you've got to do is sit and count cars or something like that, and you could read this novel. It's called Joseph Anton because that was his pen name, while, or actually his code name, while he was living under the fatwa. Joseph after Joseph Conrad and Anton after Anton Chekhov. Uh, and he was very happy when he could put Joseph Anton to sleep, kill him off, and become Salman Rushdie again. He lives in New York now. But as you will realize, he spent nine years of his life in hiding under British government protection, unable to stay in one place for more than a very short time, and for most of that time separated from his family. In 1990, he published a book called Harun and the Sea of Stories for his young son, Zafa. Zafa was 11 when Rushdie went into hiding, and he couldn't be with him for a lot of that time. So, on one level, this book is a children's fantasy. It's the sort of book you'd love to give to kids you know, or friends you know, for a birthday or Christmas or whenever. But on another level, it is a plea for freedom of speech, and for the vital necessity of stories. The story is about Harun and his father Rashid, so Rushdie Rashid, who is the city's storyteller. When his father loses the gift of the gab, Harun sets off on a quest to find the ocean of the streams of story. Eventually, he has to fight against Khatam Shud, who is a despotic leader in a silent land whose followers all have zip lips, and who is building a vast plug to dam the sea of stories forever. Because stories are the one thing he can't control. Rushdie provides a, um, a glossary of Hindustani names at the back of the book. And uh, what he says about Khatam Shud is that it means completely finished, over and done with. So. Rushdie himself has said of this book, Harun in the Sea of Stories. It's a grown-up novel of ideas masquerading as a children's book. You can maybe think of some other books like that. What do you think of right away? A grown-up novel of ideas masquerading as a children's book. Narnia. Narnia. Good. Anybody else? Perhaps Gulliver's Travels, those of you who've read it. And if you haven't, why not? Um, there are a number of books that have very serious messages, but they're written, like C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories, for children and you have to discern what else is going on in that story. The taunt that originally drives Rashid, the storyteller, to despair, and therefore to the loss of his storytelling skills, is a sarcastic comment by his totally unimaginative neighbor, Mr. Sengupta, who seduces Rashid's wife with the serious business of facts. It's a taunt which Harun throws at his father in a moment of anger when his mother has left. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? In response, Rashid hid his face in his hands 
and wept. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? This is a, a reading circle from the 15th century. I thought you might enjoy having a look at. Um, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? That's a question that haunts many English students. Perhaps particularly English students with a social conscience. Perhaps most of all, English students who are Christian. In my third year contemporary fiction class at Redeemer, we regularly read this book. I try to show the students that stories can actually be a matter of life and death in the real world, outside the story, as they have been for Rushdie. And I ask them to consider Haroon's question, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? A lively discussion regularly ensues. Many of these students seem to feel that their peers in business or environmental studies or social work or education are often, in effect, asking them that same question. What use is it to study English? Why don't you do some seriously useful work? Look at inner city ministry or saving the environment or running an honest business or teaching Bible to kids. What's all this about reading stories for your homework? Have you ever experienced that, any of you who are in English? You're keeping very quiet about it, if not. Anyway, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? And what's more, there are a number of students who regularly report that their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and siblings also give them either overt or covert hassle about studying English when they're home. What are you going to do with an English major if you don't want to be a teacher? Isn't it a bit self-indulgent? How will it advance the kingdom of God? Will it even feed your family? Now, I'm not going to talk today about the practical value of an English degree for getting you a job, though I could. Being able to read intelligently and write fluently are skills that almost any managerial job requires, for instance. You don't get a job if you can't spell, if you can't write a decent sentence, if you don't understand what you're reading, or you lose it if you get it. But I want to address rather more philosophically, because it will fit in with the uh, sorts of issues that you've been considering in your course, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? Perhaps it's even a question for some of you. Now, of course, I'm a Christian teaching in a school which takes a reformed biblical perspective. And that means I'm always conscious that in teaching literature, I'm teaching a rich creaturely expression of God's creativity under God's sovereign care. And I'm trying to be a good steward of God's various gifts. I want my, under my students to understand that literature is an extension of God's imagining and ordering of the world. I want them to recognize that God has given them literature as a beautiful and life-enhancing gift to enjoy. Aesthetic appreciation, enjoying a good book because it's beautifully put together, beautifully crafted, is in and of itself a valid thing to do. I want my students to understand that God's command in Genesis 1.28, which is... Anyone? Thank you. To be fruitful and fill the earth relates to all the world's potential, not just families and gardens. It relates to literary potential as well. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. As Calvin Seerveld puts it, some of you may know him, culture is not optional. This is kind of a staggering thing to say. 
To fight cultural amplification of creation is to be disobedient to the will of the Lord revealed in the scriptures. Wow. Think about that one for a bit. Chew on that overnight. Well, okay. But my students might still want to ask, so how does cultural amplification actually work? What's the use of stories? Okay. So in good reformed and evangelical tradition, let's start with the Bible. And first off, we might ask why Jesus himself told so many stories. After all, he's the word incarnate. And as often as not, when someone would ask him a question, he'd respond with a story. Peter asks, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive? And Jesus tells him the story about the unforgiving servant. Peter asks again, Look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus tells him the story of the laborers in the vineyard. A lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. You're good. Why does Jesus tell stories? Why doesn't he just tell the questioners and the curious and the cynics the truth? Okay. The first suggestion I want to make is that stories offer a wider kind of response than abstract propositional statements. Stories give you an environment to explore. They enlarge your head. They extend beyond your rational facilities, faculties, to include your imagination and your feelings. They put you into a narrative. And this means that any simplified headliner statements are blown up like balloons and become three-dimensional. Who is my neighbor? Well, the person I meet who needs my care, right? Partly, right? My neighbor may be a person quite unlike me. In fact, someone I don't even expect to trust. Who comes into my life at the right time and gives me a hand when I badly need it. Jesus asks at the end of that story... Who was neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He wants us to see that we're called to love not only the person in obvious need, but also the foreigner who is stronger and better off than we are. Our neighbors who help us in our need. Stories offer a bigger, more multifaceted response. Then secondly, second suggestion I'd like to make as to why Jesus told stories is that they engage our imaginations in spite of ourselves. Stories can get to us when we resist the affront of propositional truth, both intellectually and emotionally. In Jesus' story about the creditor and the two debtors, do you remember? Simon the Pharisee could see that the debtor who was forgiven the bigger debt would be likely to love the creditor more before he could see that that applied analogically to himself. So the judgment that he pronounces is on himself. Stories get under our skin. Earlier in the scriptural narrative, think of King David and Nathan's story of the ewe lamb. David has presumably, had presumably long since rationalized his many transgressions against Bathsheba and Uriah. But he's shocked into repentance by Nathan's story, which moves him and engages him before he realizes that he's passed judgment on himself. 
The American poet Emily Dickinson wrote a poem which begins, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That's how both Jesus and the Old Testament prophets tell their stories. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. It'll get in more easily. Third, stories can have this kind of power because they reflect back our everyday lives. Rather than presenting us with a list of facts to learn or a set of theories or propositions to memorize or a structure of information to retain, they come to right where we are and sit down with us among the coffee cups and the need to do the dishes or out in the summer job on the farm with a worker who gets hired later than I do but by some quirk of the employers gets paid the same as I do. Very bothering. Stories show me things about myself and my world and my relation to it. They open my eyes to where I'm sitting. They say, yes, every detail matters. Put yourself into the narrative. Watch how things unfold in time. Put your own propositions in context. Read the situation carefully. Think about the worldview. The classical critics well knew this power of literary language. to reflect the world in eloquent ways. Here's Horace writing his Art of Poetry a few years before the birth of Christ. He said, He wins every vote who combines the sweet and the useful. And then Sir Philip Sidney, really thinking again about classical learning for the 16th century, described creative literature as a speaking picture. With this end, to teach and delight. Don't you remember your material better when you're in classes where you're delighted at the same time that you're taught? Maybe I won't ask you to say anything too loud about that one right now. And so, reading these pictures is not only enjoyable, it can be a key to living well. Fourthly, stories can help me to see through someone else's eyes rather than just through my own. Stories foster empathy in their readers. How does this kind of summer job and this sort of attitude to my job look to a person from another culture? How did it look to someone a hundred years ago? How would it look to an elderly person? Or to someone from a different religion? In Redeemer's first year poetry class, we often read an essay by C.S. Lewis called Learning in Wartime. I actually think it was Dr. Loney who first got us to look at this one. It's actually a sermon that Lewis delivered at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford in 1939, the fall, just after World War II broke out in Europe. C.S. Lewis was a professor of English at Oxford, and in this essay, he's dealing with the question of how it can be legitimate for students to keep on studying in a time of national crisis while their colleagues are dying in battle. Lewis starts by pushing that envelope. He says, war simply aggravates a present situation. That's to say, we're all always in a time of crisis, en route for either heaven or hell. How then can it be justifiable for a Christian ever to spend time on literature or art or mathematics or biology rather than saving souls? And one of his answers is that it's precisely in reading literature and in studying 
that our experience of life is expanded to the extent that we can live wisely and well in the present. He says we need to know about other times and places. This is a quote. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. And also, in a similar way, the scholar, quote, has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. You could put in there maybe social media or whatever you like to say. Because literature can give us a particularly vivid surrogate experience of living in many times and places, it is particularly able to cultivate in us the capacity to see from someone else's point of view. Let's go back to Jesus' stories because it may be useful to ask, what kinds of stories does Jesus tell? And what exactly is their truth content? Are Jesus' stories true stories of someone or something he's experienced? Or are they made-up stories that illustrate what he wants to say? And does it matter? Stories were clearly very useful to Jesus. He would see situations that needed addressing, and he would address them with a story. Those who trust in themselves and despise others are given the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Those who love money are given the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Those who grumble that Jesus spends time with sinners are given the story of the prodigal son and his brother. But could Jesus' listeners go and see that particular Pharisee in the temple? Could they go and visit the brothers of that particular rich man? Could they go and talk with that particular lost sheep of Israel who is found or with his mean-spirited brother? Was Jesus talking about a good Samaritan he'd met? Had Jesus met the prodigal son? Did these people really exist? Well, you might say, yes and no. The truth of stories is not necessarily the kind of truth which has a specific, what we call, empirical referent, a particular piece of real-world evidence in mind. The truth of stories is something more wide-reaching than that. Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan becomes a story about anyone who sees a person in need and helps them out. Jesus' story about the unforgiving servant becomes a story about anyone who gives less mercy than he receives. Jesus' story about the prodigal son becomes a story about anyone who sees the error of his ways and is received back into the family. Does this universalizing from particulars make the stories less true? It's a question. Of course, sometimes Jesus does tell stories about things that had actually happened, even things that were part of the Jewish scriptures. For instance, the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, or John the Baptist's ministry. Sometimes he tells stories about things that haven't happened yet, like his death and resurrection, or the fall of Jerusalem, or his coming again at the end of the world. So, even the truth of historical stories is not necessarily a truth of relation to past events. It can be a prophecy about the future. 
And we believe that many of the Old Testament prophet stories about the future have already come true, though the way in which the story and the actuality fit together isn't all that straightforward, is it? To describe the Messiah as a shepherd, or a shoot from dry ground, or as having no comeliness that we should desire him, is to use images that have to be interpreted to relate to Jesus. So it's not just truth as correct factuality that we're talking about here. It's the truth of the imagination. It's the truth of faith. Think about good preachers and teachers that you know. Good preachers often tell stories, don't they? Because they want to both teach and delight. They have a lesson to teach. And they find a story to teach it. They want to engage your imagination. Sometimes even in spite of yourself. Sometimes the stories are about things that have really happened. Sometimes they're made up stories. I remember a group of Redeemer students a few years back returning from a program at the Overseas Missions Study Center at Yale University where they met pastors and missionaries from all over the world. The students were very struck by the fact that when the African brothers would tell stories to illustrate what they wanted to say, it was actually irrelevant to them whether those were stories of fact or stories of fiction. All the stories were alive. All of them were used to bring something important into the light. In that sense, all the stories were true. Now, wait a minute, you say. At least, I hope you do. This is getting messy. I mean, a story can't always be equally valid whether it's happened or not. What about the big story that we live in? The meta-narrative of our faith. You've probably learned that word, right? Surely it matters that Jesus was a real human being who walked this earth and healed people and told stories and died by crucifixion and rose from death in a special kind of body and went back to be with his Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Yes, that story matters. The story has to be what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. It's not enough to believe in the concept of the story or the general imaginative truth of the story. We need a real Jesus in a real body and dying a real death if we're to be born into God's kingdom. So yes, it does matter that we know what's fact and what's fiction around Jesus. And surely it does matter too when we tell other stories about events from the past There's a difference, isn't there, between a fictional story that might be made up about some young soldier who fought and died in the Second World War and the story of my uncle, whom I never met because he really did die, age 21, in the awful mess around Monte Cassino years before I was born and whose grave is marked on the hillside at that place. My grandfather, his father, was a semi-professional cellist and the story was told in our family that On the day that he heard his son had been killed, he put away his cello and he didn't play it again for two whole years. That was truly true. We have to be careful, don't we, not to take away the dignity and the significance of real people and real death and real grief by turning everything into the kind of story that doesn't seem to need a specific real referent. And yet... There's a Catholic philosopher called uh, Richard Carney, teaches at Boston University, Boston College, 
who champions the importance of story. And he argues that we need both narrative truth and so-called scientific truth because, quote, the best way of respecting historical memory is to combine the most effective forms of narrative witness with the most objective forms of archival, forensic and empirical evidence. This means, in a related move, we need to take our fictional stories seriously too. Because we need to realize that stories can open our eyes and minds, convict our hearts, lead us into empathy, compassion for people very different from ourselves. And if we remember that the telling of stories can be a matter of life and death in many parts of the world, even today, then perhaps we will be less dismissive than Mr. Sengupta in Rushdie's story, and then many conservative Christians have stories that, quotes, aren't even true. Remember that Mr. Sengupta seduces Rashid's wife not with story, but with facts. Quote, a proper man would know that life is a serious business, Soraya says in her farewell note. Mr. Sengupta has no imagination at all. This is okay by me. What a wonderful rebuttal of those who are concerned that it is fiction that can lure us from the straight and narrow, while facts somehow correlate with ethical living. But I'd like to go back for a minute to the notion of scripture and truth in scripture. I'm always struck, as perhaps you have been, by Jesus' statement at his trial before Pilate. I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And what does Pilate say? That's right. What is truth? What irony that Jesus, who is the truth, is standing right there. Pilate doesn't understand that the truth could be a who as well as a what. What difference might it make, I wonder, to our understanding of truth and of true stories to start from that insight? Truth is a person. Truth is embodied. Truth is alive. In order to think further about that question for myself, I decided to investigate the word truth in the Bible with help from some concordances and one of the biblical scholars at Redeemer, Dr. Al Walters. Some of you may have met his little book, Creation Regained. And here's what I discovered. First of all, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for truth is emet. Some of you know this, right? Which suggests truth as reliability, permanence, continuance, fidelity, Dr. Walters told me that this word, therefore, refers as much to faithfulness or constancy as to factuality. It's a personal characteristic, often joined with hesed, which means loving kindness. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word is aletheia. Dr. Walters explained that it's commonly emphasized by biblical scholars that the New Testament use of aletheia must be understood in the light of that Old Testament emet not the Greek philosophical idea of theoretical truth. So here too, truth is relational. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And one of the things that interested me and surprised me most is that truth is also a verb. Did you know this? A behavior, to truth. Speaking the truth can literally be translated truthing in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. It's not just about words, it's about truthing, it's about being. 
Truth as relational, reliability, fidelity, troth, constancy. I checked my big English Oxford dictionary. We have one of those ones with lots of different volumes that was given to my mom when she was a teenager. You know, the one that has historical citations for every word, and you can go back kind of over 600 years and find out how it's been used. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, it turns out that in English too, this relational idea of truth is a much more ancient way of understanding truth than the notion of truth as conformity with fact or accuracy of representation or agreement with a common standard or correctness of an account of reality. That second set of meanings, conformity with fact, accuracy, agreement, correctness, comes into play somewhere around the time of the Reformation. And not surprisingly, it increases in provenance through the period of the Enlightenment because then there's that particular emphasis on the powers of reason and rational argument. But of course the first group of meanings, the ones that revolve around integrity, the ones that revolve around fidelity and relational truth, are particularly powerful in approaching the study of a a wide range of literature. Okay, now I'm going to give you just a little bit from a French philosopher. Hang in here. Paul Ricoeur. How many of you have heard of him before? Yes, good. Four of you. That's nice to know. So, here he is. French Protestant Christian philosopher, actually the thesis supervisor of the Richard Carney I quoted a minute ago. He died in 2005 at the great age of 92. The thing to be is obviously a French Christian Protestant philosopher if you want to live into your 90s. Ricoeur has something else really significant to say about the importance of stories because he talks of what he calls a narrative quality of experience. And he describes human life itself as an incipient story. That's to say a story that's coming. A story that's about to be. Needs to be made into a narrative. He actually argues that the serious business of life cannot be understood other than through stories that we tell. And he goes even further than that. He suggests that it's by using what he calls narrative intelligence that we try to gain a hold on our selfhood, our integrity, our being. That there's such a thing as the narrative identity which constitutes us. You're made up of stories. Stories tell you who you are. You write a story about your own life all the time, every day. And it changes day by day and grows. That's why you need your parents and your family and your past to help you to know your story and to grow into it. In other words, we, have, we need to have a narrative understanding of ourselves to grow into full personhood. Obviously, we're not fully developed as individual selves, as mature people at birth. But if our self is developed through the narrative wholeness that Ricoeur talks about, it gains it in part from the stories that we receive through the literary tradition, not just Bible stories, but the whole cultural tradition that we inherit helps us to understand how stories work. He argues that a life is no more than a biological phenomenon as long as it is not interpreted. And in the interpretation, fiction plays a considerable mediating role. A life is no more than a biological phenomenon as long as it is not interpreted. And in the interpretation, Fiction plays a considerable mediating role. What he's suggesting here is that reading fiction shows you how plot works. 
shows you how narrative is shaped. It shows you how to do the same kind of work in finding meaning in your own story, in the story of your life. In fact, since reading is already, Ricoeur says, a way of living in the fictitious universe of the work, one could say that stories are in any case always lived in the imaginary mode. Okay, you did well with that. Here we go. We might suggest then that hearing and understanding and interpreting stories is part of the God-given way our self is brought into full adulthood. Not just in Jesus' telling of stories, but also in our telling of stories, real and fictional, to one another. Stories that have a central part to play in our working out who we are as human beings. The early Puritans knew this, didn't they, when they laid emphasis on the importance of personal testimony as a way of testifying to God's salvation narrative in the individual life as part of a Christian's growth in spiritual health and strength. How many of you come from a tradition where personal testimony is very important? Okay, so those people come from traditions that understand the importance of your implotting and narrating your story, how important that is for you to grow in your own spiritual health. Today there are a lot of Christian traditions that emphasize the importance of giving your testimony. It's a, a continuation of a belief that you see in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, 1678. Christian in that story is constantly being questioned by evangelist and asked to spell out what he's been learning, what he's been experiencing. And that's because Christian needs to understand his own story. And in the modern secular world, look at the third one on this list as well. There's been a rediscovery of the health-giving power of story especially in counseling and in trauma therapy, where the telling of the story is seen as a vital part of a person's move to health. You know, you need to keep on telling the story until you've come to terms with it. You need to keep on trying it out until you've understood it, until you've found a way through it, until you've come to an end. Let's go back to Paul Ricoeur for a minute. In an interview, he said, narration preserves the meaning that is behind us, so that we can have meaning before us. And also, to give people back a memory is also to give them back a future, to put them back in time, and thus release them from the instantaneous mind. If you've ever known anybody who's lost their memory, you will know how incredibly difficult it is for a person in that situation to have a sense of self, because they have no story anymore. And this is one of the things that Ricoeur is talking about here. Okay. Let's look at the biblical story and the story of the church. Think about how this notion of Ricoeur's relates to the biblical story. The Bible is full of directives from God's people to remember the story. Think of all those memorial stones in the Old Testament that heroes place at significant moments in their journeys to remind people in perpetuity of the events that took place there. Think of the rituals that mark the remembrance of a story. The Passover, which is the ritual itself, includes the telling of a story. Processions, offerings. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus' institution of the communion meal, whatever you may call it, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it in your tradition, is in order that we should remember his death until his coming again. It's specifically in order for us to remember the story. Each of these ways of remembering is not only to recall a central propositional truth, God is merciful, God is just, God is the redeemer, God is alive. 
Each of them is also a way of remembering the story in which that truth is embedded and enacted. God has been active in the story of God's people and continues to be and will be till the end of time, which God alone will initiate. Tomorrow, what season do we begin? Lent. Good. Every year, we remember Jesus' temptations in the wilderness and we prepare our own lives for the trauma and then the rejoicing of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But just like Lent and just like Easter, every memorial of the church, every baptism, every wedding, every Sunday Eucharist, every saying of the Lord's Prayer, every giving of thanks in a meal, has its meaning not just in that moment alone, but in the story of which it is a part. Your wedding will be a wedding that reminds you of other people's weddings. And that's the reason why there's a tradition of what you might wear or say at that wedding. The story of which it is a part has a past and a present and a future in the great narrative of scripture that we're inhabiting. And I think we fail to see that to our own detriment. It's when Christians lose sight of the whole story, the big, the meta-narrative, at least in my experience, that they're most likely to fall into error or depression or doubt or schism or apathy or just generally to lose their sense of direction. You see, God doesn't call us primarily to a set of rules or even to a set of beliefs. He calls us to join a community of faith within a great narrative of faith with a past, a present and a future. And that's why narrative matters so much to the Christian. That's where God has put us in a narrative. Christians inhabit the story. Perhaps one could say that the narrative God has authored is being written around them and through them, or around us and through us. There's a book called The New Testament and the People of God. Some of you may have met it. It's by the British theologian N.T. Wright. Anybody know that book? This lady back here has read all these things. Very impressive. Talk to her later. Um, In that book, he considers how the power and authority of the biblical narrative are related to its goal. He imagines scripture on the model of a Shakespearean five-act play. So we have Act 1, Creation, Act 2, Fall, Act 3, The History of Israel Before Christ, Act 4, The Kingdom Jesus Initiates in His Life, Death, and Resurrection, and Act 5, The History of the Church Till Its Final Consummation. And Wright says that the one act that isn't fully written is Act 5, because we're in Act 5, and we're improvising. We've been told the beginning of the story, we've been told the middle, and we've been told the end. We know the key events of the narrative, we have the overarching shape, but we have to live out Act 5, improvising as we go along. God has given us the responsibility, if you like, of getting to the end of the act. That story is not just something we read or something we hear. It's something we live inside. In the post-Christian West, we have been so deeply shaped by stories such as the parable of the Good Samaritan that we can take them for granted. At some level, our culture still lives inside them. But when the stories are heard in a cultural context where they're new, the sense of how they can influence cultural consciousness is much more starkly apparent. For instance, 
Listen to the account of one Catholic missionary to the Maasai in Tanzania in the 1960s. He tells of a group of Maasai who had brought a badly wounded man of another group to the hospital at Wasa. The doctor was able to save the man's life, but then he asked the Maasai, so why did you bring this man? Because in Maasai tradition, someone who is that badly hurt would be left outside the village for the hyenas to eat. And this man was not a Maasai. He was an undurable. And the Maasai elder said, as it says on the screen, well, that's the way the story goes. The doctor said, what do you mean, what story? And the elder replied, I'm not sure I remember it right, but it's something like this. There was this guy who was beaten up by thieves, and people from his own ethnic group kept passing him by. So we had to bring him. Do you see how, in that context, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just a story. As it's told and thought about and discussed in community, it touches the hearers at a deeper level, and it begins to change the way they behave, even to the extent of subverting a really long-held cultural pattern, in this case the old conviction that while you care for your own ethnic group, outsiders don't need to be treated equally. Here the Maasai are learning from the story how to live out Act 5. Time to go back to Harun. If we look back to the story of Harun, we find that Rashdi does something surprisingly similar there with stories, something that answers that awful question, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? Rashid, the storyteller, used to tell a favorite story about a moody land where things change constantly according to the moods of the inhabitants. Do you ever feel like that about your day? After the disaster of Sarai's leaving and Rashid's losing the gift of the gab, and when he and Harun are being ferried across Dull Lake on their unwilling way to work for Snooty Batu, the dishonest politician, Rashid and Harun experience the weather as alternately gloomy, miserable, harsh, confused. Suddenly, Harun realizes they're living inside the land of his father's story. When he speaks with authority to the lake, sounds a bit like another story we know, doesn't it? The boiling breeze fell away, the thunder and lightning stopped, and the waves calmed down. A student in a recent contemporary fiction class of mine, Mitchell Sycamore, uh, wrote a fine paper on Harun and the Sea of Stories, and here's one of the things he wrote. He said, In the act of participating in and believing in his father's stories, Harun experiences an overt occurrence of magic, and confirms to himself that the real world was full of magic, so magical worlds could easily be real. This is an event that acts like a mirror, like, acts as a window into the magical world that Harun is about to be whisked away to. It is only through this fantastical baptism that Harun can come to the place where stories can come to life. In other words, fantasy has an ability, a utility, to see our world in new ways, helping to enchant and deepen our experience of existence. In the beginning, Harun can be seen as a story skeptic, a young man on the verge of discarding the fantastic in exchange for a dry and yeastless factuality. I like that phrase. Like the clerkish Mr. Sangupta. But in being introduced to a world where magic comes to life, Harun learns that stories are not merely silly decorations on the peripheries of life, but part of its very fabric. The ocean of the streams of story was much more than a storeroom of yarns. It was not dead but alive. 
There's a book that we use in our first year fiction courses at Redeemer. Uh, Susan Van Zandt and Gallagher and, and, and Roger Landine's book, Literature Through the Eyes of Faith. Do you know that book too, some of you? It's a book to know if you don't. When we read, say Gallagher and Landine, we participate in life as we see how books structure, interpret and communicate experiences and truths. One of the things stories do is teach us about our lives by suggesting various universal aspects of the human condition and various practical contextualized responses to these things. In this way, stories develop in their readers that narrative intelligence which Ricoeur describes, not a kind of theory, but a kind of practical wisdom, kind of moral judgment. Ricoeur also writes, I thought that was a clever illustration, incidentally, you can think about this one, it's a metaphor. Um, he writes, the meaning or the significance of a story wells up from the intersection of the world of the text and the world of the reader. And the uh, italics there are in the original. So, there's a looking for meaning, in other words, when you're looking at a story that relates not just to the world inside the book, but to the world outside of it too. And that begins to help us understand what it means to say literature enables us to participate in life. At the end of the story of Harun, when Rashid is reunited with his story tap, and so he's able to be a storyteller again, he stands up at the political rally where he's been hired to tell stories, and the story he tells is the story of the book we've just been reading. It's that kind of circular thing that's going on there. And the effect of the story is that the listeners recognize in it the repressive forces embodied in the politicos around them. They refuse to submit to their machinations any longer. They chant them out of the arena to the accompaniment of much pelting with rubbish and are freed up to choose the rulers that they actually want. <coughs> Two cheers for democracy, in other words. Rashid's storytelling has enabled the people listening to find themselves, to discover their own identity. So stories are useful in that political sense. But there's another factor, too, in Harun, and that is that Saraya comes back. I want to quote here, and this is an extra little piece that I found yesterday when I was reading that book by Rushdie called Joseph Anton, and he's writing in the third person about himself. He says, It pleased him then and forever afterward that in the darkest moments of his life he wrote his brightest and most cheerful book, a book with the genuine, bona fide, well-earned, happy ending he had wanted, the first he had ever come up with. So, Soraya comes back. It turns out that Mr. Sengupta's lack of imagination is combined with a lot of other less than pleasant qualities. Soraya says, what a skinny, scrawny, sniveling, driveling, mangy, stingy, measly, weasley clerk, or clerk to you. As far as I'm concerned, he's finished, done for, gone for good. Katam should, Harun said quietly. So Rashti is suggesting that stories are not only useful in an instrumental kind of way, in that they can wake people up to political oppression and opportunism, but they're also useful in a more inward and personal way, because they're a place where the imagination runs free, because they enable people to see things afresh and from another person's point of view. They can be a counterbalance then to meanness and stinginess and general lack of humanity. In an essay called Is Nothing Sacred?, which he wrote while he was under the fatwa. And it was actually delivered by Harold Pinter because he couldn't be there himself to deliver it. They were, the forces of the British government who were looking after him wouldn't allow him to appear in public. Rashi tells a parable about literature providing the one room 
in the great house of the world where we can go to reflect, to listen to all kinds of voices, talking in all kinds of ways about the past, the present, and the future, what has happened, what is happening, what should happen. And he sees this room, this space for voices, as absolutely necessary to make life livable, so that the house of the world is not a prison, but a community of possibility. I kind of like that. Of course, however, and if you're still awake enough to do this, you'll have realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need to be critical here. That's a good thing to be thinking about, because Christians will want to reframe Rushdie's argument, right? Because his view of the literary imagination makes it almost salvific, almost as if you can be saved through literature. And that's a kind of neo-romanticism that turns the imagination into an idol. We are, first and foremost, people of the book, the Bible. We live in the grand story that God is authoring through time. And by its light, we interpret everything else that we read and experience. Far from being romantic about the imagination, our story reminds us of its darkness, doesn't it? Right from the get-go. The tendency in all of us to behave like spoiled children, whose imaginations may actually help us find ways to be even more thoroughly stingy, measly, and weasley. Our stories, in fact, remind us of sin. But God, in his divine wisdom, has given us stories of all kinds within this house of the world. Rushdie is right. We do need stories. Even though they can be dangerous or blasphemous or blatantly false advertising, and one of the functions of your education is to teach us as readers how to be critical of what stories say and do and to discern which are which. Nevertheless, stories give us, but is a shorter way of saying nevertheless, stories give us environments to explore. They engage and stretch our imaginations. They reflect our lives back to us. They help us see from other people's points of view, even in other times and places. They help us to write our own narrative identities. They are, you might say, a matter of life and death. And as a result, these second-order texts, not God's first-order texts of Scripture, but the second-order texts of things that we write, written by God's creatures, whether, or, whether with uh, an overt acknowledgement of God or not, can help in directing us to that state of peace and harmony between self and other, self and the creation, self and God. And what do we call that state? Anybody? You do know, really. The word is shalom, right? A state of peace and harmony between you and God, you and yourself, you and other people, and you and the wider world, and the environment, incidentally. A very important part of that. But finally, there's a vital qualification here. For this learning through literature of compassion... And understanding an identity is obviously in and of itself insufficient to move us to action. We're not all sweetness and light. Literature cannot save us, whatever Rushdie following the great educationalists of the 19th and 20th centuries may hope. If nothing else, the two world wars of the 20th century surely taught us that, that cultural education doesn't make people good. If you've seen Schindler's List, you know about this, right? The SS officers in Buchenwald couldn't have listened to Mozart with such pleasure if education made us good. Seeing how best to live certainly doesn't automatically result in our living that way. 
So, we don't just need the meta-narrative of the Bible story as the foundation for understanding how to live well in this great house of the world. We also need the spirit of the author. Because the spirit of the author will both will and empower us to live like that. Those new Maasai converts in Tanzania were certainly doing a whole lot better than many of us, I think. Van Zanten Gallagher and Lundin say, only the working of the spirit can transform an understanding of literature's moral issues into action. Both with the primary scriptural stories and with the second order stories that God has gifted people to tell, it is only through the working of the spirit who speaks the truth of the stories into our lives that we can find our humanity enlarged and strengthened. In fact, it is ultimately only by God's grace that whether stories are fictionally true or historically true, their imaginative value can bring us delight. And it is surely only by God's grace that the usefulness of these stories as vehicles of what we were calling truthing can be something that I as a teacher of literature and as a believer in God's continuing involvement as the supreme author can daily bet my life on. As Harun learned, even though we need some serious help to be and do what we should, it is truly a miraculous thing to be alive in the land of stories. And here's a picture to make you think. Maybe I should have found one just of your campus, but I wanted it bigger than that. I wanted a picture of the city for you to say, this is the land of stories. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for putting us in the grand narrative of your story. We thank you that you have called us to inhabit the story. We thank you that you have asked us, given us the opportunity to invent, to act out Act 5 of the story. We pray for your help in doing that. We ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit. That we would recognize these gifts that you have given to us, not just in the word of scripture, but also in the stories of people who can help us to see ourselves and our neighbors and our world and our history and our emotions more fully. We ask that you would bless us in our gifts. We ask for any here who have gifts of writing, And for all of us, as we are gifted to read, that we might read with discernment so that we act out what you have called us to do in this grand narrative. And I pray, too, for this particular class as they think about the interactions, the interrelations of one part of this story to another, that they would get excited and indeed challenged by the way in which the story you've called us to live in is a story that's a matter of life and death. We ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Good. Thank you.